Lakeisha Gunter, and you're listening to Roar, an energetic and enlightening weekly podcast that will help you achieve more. This weekly infusion of candid insights, indispensable lessons, inspiring stories, and success strategies for living your best life now will help you on your journey to making your dreams a reality. My experience as a Fortune 50 business and tech executive has led me to meet some pretty amazing people. On Roar, I share real talks with top executives, thought leaders, luminaries, authors, and entrepreneurs who are passionate about building the next generation of inspired, empowered, game-changing leaders. Are you ready to fear less and move into your dream life? Let's Roar! Welcome to Roar. I'm your host, Lakeisha Gunter. So what do I mean by Roar? The beauty of Roar is that it's both an acronym, and the acronym stands for Reflection, Opportunity, Action, and Relationships. And it's an action. We are all born with it, a hidden power inside of us. It's a fire that's often suppressed by fear. That power is your roar, and it is waiting to be unleashed. Today, we're in the midst of a global pandemic. This is something we've never experienced in our lifetimes. We're navigating our work and personal lives in a very different and uncertain way. In the midst of unprecedented change and ambiguity, it can be difficult for many of us to hold on to our creativity. I know at times for me, this has happened, and I'm sure I'm not alone. So today, I want to talk about how can we reignite our creativity in times of uncertainty. I truly believe it will be the spikes in creativity at home and in business that will be the catalyst that we need to create not just a new normal, but a better normal. My guest today, Dr. Natalie Nixon, knows all about unleashing creativity and innovation for business and career success. Let me introduce you to Dr. Nixon. Dr. Nixon is a creative strategist who happily integrates wonder and rigor into her life and work. She converted a 16-year career as a professor into a successful consulting practice. As president of Figure 8 Thinking, LLC, she advises and emboldens companies to transform their business results by applying creativity. Natalie incorporates her background in anthropology and fashion, as well as her experiences living abroad to help clients become more dynamic versions of themselves. Who doesn't want to become a more dynamic version of themselves? She is the author of several books, including The Creativity Leap, Unleash Curiosity, Improvisation, and Intuition at Work, and Strategic Design Thinking, Innovation in Products, Services, Experiences, and Beyond. And she is also a regular contributor to Inc. Magazine on creativity, design thinking, and the future of work. Welcome, Dr. Nixon. We are so glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Lakeisha. I'm so happy to be here. And please call me Natalie. (laughs) Absolutely, Natalie. I tell you, I've been so excited to have this conversation just in our initial connection and, and learning a little bit more about your background. I'm like, she is going to rock it. My audience is going to love to hear from you, especially around being able to create in times like this. We're just going to launch right in into this topic on being creative and really developing creativity in a time like this. So tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and how that shaped who you are today. So I am from Philly. I'm from the East Coast of the United States. I grew up in the city and was very much a city kid. My parents, it was really important to them that they equipped us with being observant and knowing how to navigate. So I started actually taking public transportation around the fourth grade. 
Wow. Uh, that was because uh, with my sister, my younger sister, who's 20 months younger than me, because we started going to a school in the suburbs. That's a whole nother story why we switched from urban Philly public schools to suburban, but that was the reason. But I grew up in a really loving, supportive family. And I was an incredible goofball as a kid, Um, very much a tomboy, loved, loved, loved to read. I always said I was a library kid. My mother was amazing at figuring out all sorts of free city types of things for her kids to do. So I grew up loving vacation reading club as part of the free library. I was a dancer. My mom put me into dance class when I was four years old and um, have been dancing ever since. And I actually ended up going to three very different types of schools growing up. I went first, as I mentioned, to a traditional Philly urban public school. Before that, I went to a, a pretty crunchy granola cooperative nursery school. Then I went to, from kindergarten through third grade, uh, public school, and then in the city, and then in our community. And then I went to suburban public school for three years through sixth grade, fourth through sixth. And then I went to a really awesome and, you know, elite education of a private prep school, a Quaker prep school, wonderful education at Germantown Friends School. I went there from seventh through 12th grade. So I grew up just really feeling like I could do anything I put my mind to. And it was also a home where I saw a lot of giving and generosity modeled by from my parents to elders in the community, to family. My dad was a big jazz hit. My mother loved classical music. So I grew up with a lot of music in the home. So yeah, I, I had a really blessed and happy childhood. Wonderful. And how has it shaped your career? Or maybe even your thinking about your journey? Well, you know, I always say my father was an, an interesting mix. I'm African-American. My father was very much what one would call a race man. He was incredibly proud of our African-American history, heritage, and culture. And so as was my mom, but he particularly, you know, held no punches in being really clear about his pride as an African-American man. He also was chauvinist, I realized growing up, but (laughs) it was a weird type of chauvinism because I grew up, you know, where he taught us how to mow the lawn and he taught us the right way to wash a car. And I constantly heard girls, you always got to have your own. And so there were always these really direct, clear messages that he wanted to see us to be able to take care of ourselves, to have our own, to be financially independent. But he had his moments of chauvinism. I mean, he's a man, you know, a product of the 50s and 60s. My dad passed away in in 2012 at the relatively young age of 71. But Mm -hmm. I had that really strong, devoted, caring father. He wasn't real touchy-feely. He was old school in that way. But I never had any doubt at all that my father loved me. He was at every single dance recital, every track meet, usually right at the starting blocks, <laughs> just kind nice. of standing off to the side. My mother, just incredibly creative. My mother is really an artist. She was a weaver. So interesting, like where, where most kids might be in the back seat of the car playing with dolls or puzzles, we had our own looms, little lap looms that my mother had made. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, my mother was the first intellectual in my life. Um, I just found my mother, I've always thought my mother's incredibly smart, super curious. So those two models really equipped me with incredible confidence and just a real affinity for learning, for always learning. I just saw that modeled in my parents. 
Love it. Love it. Yeah. So sounds like that creativity, confidence, and the learning bent really was part of your DNA. And you were surrounded by it uh, with your amazing parents, it sounds like. And those sounds like very formative um, experiences for you and really shaped who you are. Talk a little bit about maybe what stands out in your mind and maybe as a defining moment that really helped you find your roar. You know, like I think for so many of us, it came out of a bit of adversity. So I referenced that we started going to a a public school. This is in the 70s. This is in 1978-79 in Philadelphia. To this day, public school education is one of the most segregated institutions in America. And by second, third grade, my parents were just getting super disgruntled by the fact that my mother was having to teach us our multiplication tables. I still didn't really know how to tell time. I would get an attitude because my mother had really fought to make sure I was in the AP, the advanced uh, sections of of classes and in a school that was 98% black. Um, When I would go to the AP classes, I was the only little brown person in the class. Mm -hmm. The other students were white. And I would come home with an attitude and say, I didn't like those classes. And my mother would say, well, why not? And I said, because my friends aren't there. And she'd say, well, that's why you're there. (laughs) And and, um, my father, my pop figured out that if we went to a school just outside of Philadelphia County, he would have to pay that county money because we didn't live in that county, but we would be able to go to that public school where where the standards were a lot more rigorous. The class sizes were smaller. And my sister and I were the first Black kids in each of our respective classes. And for wow. the first few weeks of school in fourth grade, I was called the N-word by several white boys in my class, in my grade. And it was the first time in my life that I realized I was an other, that I was mm-hmm. a different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because my block was Black, my family was Black, my school was Black, my right. church was Black. And that was normative. And then I get to a school where clearly I felt the difference, couldn't really articulate it well, knew that word was unacceptable and not all right. And if you go to to Philly urban public schools and the ones that are not as affluent, you have to know how to stand up for yourself. You have to to know how to fight. And I I wasn't good at fighting. And I always would make sure I had friends who knew how to fight. (laughs) I would be all right. And I get to then fast forward to fourth grade where I clearly had to start speaking up for myself. And it was one of the most solitary Mm. times of my very young life, but also a really spiritual time of my life. I remember I would sometimes go into the bathroom and I would just feel so sad. I would feel so alone. And I remember a defining moment where I was in the bathroom feeling sad and there was a window. I was kind of in the last stall and the sun was shining through the window and I felt what I called the presence of God. And mm-hmm. it was just this incredible courage that came over me. The other thing was that my father would randomly appear in the school just whenever. So I, I my desk was in line sight of the doorway mm-hmm. entry classroom. And I would be working on a worksheet and I would see something in my peripheral vision and I would see his shoes and then my eyes would go up and it would be his pants and his overcoat. And he would just stand in the doorway and he'd look at the teacher, smile at her, look at me. I was in my seat down the end of the hall talking to the principal. So there was always this presence mm-hmm. of the father's protection, knowing what his girls were going through. But, you know, it was really clear to me because my, my parents also never hid from us how hard they were sacrificing for our education 
that he was doing his best to ensure that our minds were developed fully and that we were exposed to the best. That was always something really important to him. But anyway, that moment of being called the N-word, having to stand up for myself, having to hold my head high was pretty defining. And I realized years later, what had started to happen in me was that I got so good at showing confidence, being able to stand up for myself. I kind of overcorrected for it. And at my core, I'm a pretty sensitive person, which most people who don't know me well are very surprised to hear. I mean, my husband, my mother, my sister will all tell you I'm super sensitive. And going back to the urban public school where I started, you recall, I said, I didn't know how to fight. I didn't like to fight. I found friends who knew how to do that. To my core, I'm a really sensitive chick. And I grew into this extroverted, speak up for yourself Mm -hmm. type of person. And over the years, you know, I learned to bring out more of the softness in me again. But that all I know now, you know, that I can really trace it back to needing to be able to be, you know, the words I use now are a boundary spanner, which Mm. so many Black Americans have to do when, you know, you continually find that you're the only one in the room or one of a few. You get really good at making others comfortable with you. You get really good at anticipating their needs. You get really good at being a translator. And I had to learn that quickly at at the age of nine in the fourth grade. Incidentally, those same boys ended up being my buddies by the end of the school year because I was a good athlete and sports always, you know, bring kids together. And frankly, they were repeating the messed up stuff they were hearing in their homes. Sure. But anyway, that is what I would say was a pretty defining moment. Absolutely. There's a lot in what's a lot of richness in what you said, but it sounds like those crucible moments really shaped you to be who you are today and really pulled out the things that your parents instilled in you, the confidence, the strength, the resilience, the knowing who you were and being able to share your voice more freely. And I love the the power of presence and how your father made sure that you knew he was there and the teachers knew he was there. And so you could continue to be successful in that environment because they just never knew when dad might pop up, right? Exactly. Yes. I love that. You hit on a couple of things I want to tap into. Um, You talked about the skill of learning how to translate and really, I would say, navigate your environments in a way where people could embrace you, feel comfortable with you, understand how to partner with you, for lack of a better term. And you learn that at such a young age. Talk about how that translation skill has served you well over your career and how we might need to figure out how to cultivate that if we don't know how to do that just yet, the importance of it. Yeah, that translation skill is something that I really undervalued, underestimated, didn't have those words and language for probably up until my 30s. Because I would say through my 20s, I was kind of a classic, you know, no offense, but in our 20s, I always say to younger people, your 20s, they're not great. Like you don't really know anything. You have great ideas, but you don't know how to really execute on them. No one really takes you seriously. (laughs) It's a very kind of frustrating decade to get through. And one of the frustrations I used to feel was to put the terms of a acquaintance of mine to it. I had my hands on my hips a lot. I was really you know, I knew I was smart. I knew I'd been exposed to a ton. I was just getting so frustrated with having to be the only one, the one of a few. And 
something shifted for me in my 30s where I realized what an asset mm-hmm. that perspective was. It's such an asset to be a person who is often on the margins because of the amazing perspective that being on the margins gives you. So whether you are on the margins because you're differently abled, because of your gender, because you are a foreign national or you're an immigrant, in my case, it's as a Black woman, I have developed incredible EQ. I've developed amazing political savvy. I have to, within the first 30 seconds of walking into a room, be able to read it. And that has served me quite well. I've had to be much more observant, Mm -hmm. right, of the political dynamics of situations. So I think that, you know, I, instead of using my differences as a burden, I suddenly realized what a gift, Mm -hmm. what an asset to be able to be able to translate all my different experiences and realities in order to connect with others better. What happens sometimes if you are considered the norm, you get a little lazy. You you don't have to stretch much. You don't have to reach outside of yourself to understand others, to be more curious, which leads to empathy. And, you know, these are some of the core assets of of really great leadership. Wow. You're absolutely right. As as you were talking, I was just reflecting on, you know, sometimes when you're the only in the room, you you look at it as a negative, but it can be such a strength if you cultivate it in the right way. And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Um, Leveraging the difference for good and really being an example for other people to follow in a sense, right? Because sometimes people are just so self-absorbed and we're not curious about other people, but learning about the folks who are in your environment and really how to connect with them, that unlocks success very, very quickly. And speaking yeah. of success, I mean, and you know, you've translated your skills from one profession to the next in an amazing career journey, right? You've had experience in education, fashion, academia, industry, and now as, a, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. These are major, major shifts in your career. Talk a little bit about how you were able to do that. I mean, which of these pivots was the most challenging for you? They really tested your mettle, so to speak, and your roar. And how were you able to successfully pivot? You know, to be quite honest with you, going through it was not very seamless and simple and easy. Okay. <laughs> you know, now retrospectively, it makes sense. I can articulate. But, you know, to be fair, I think even going through it, the real motivator for each pivot I took was to follow my heart. And again, I have to reference my parents again because. When I was a sophomore in college, I was a student at Vassar College, a really amazing, high-end, high-caliber education, and I was going through what I call a first-world problem. Mm-hmm. And my first-world problem was I didn't know what to declare as my major. Right. So I wanted to please my parents, not disappoint them. It was very top of mind for me how much they had sacrificed for our education. I wanted to make sure I, I got a good job at the end of this very expensive and wonderful education. And I called home crying. It's fall of my sophomore year. I was going to have to declare soon. And I said, you know, I just don't know what to declare for my major. And so they said, you know, this is in the days when there was a phone in the kitchen and a phone in their bedroom. So they should have got a phone. And they're listening to me go on and on and bemoaning my situation. They said, well, what are you interested in? I don't really answer the question. I start explaining how I almost failed econ and I don't really like poli sci. And 
Soch just reduces people to statistics. And they said, okay, what are you interested in? And then I kind of apologetically started saying, oh, I'm just really loving this anthropology classes I've been taking. And oh my gosh, these African studies courses are amazing. I'm learning philosophy and economics and poli sci through the lens of the African diaspora. And they were like, that's what you That's it, right. (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, what? And they said, almost at the same time, they said, you should follow your heart. You need Mm. to study what you love. And my father said, if you study what you love, Natalie, you're going to have to turn down opportunities. Trust me. Mm -hmm. And I said, so you are okay if I study anthropology? Now, this (laughs) is in the 80s where I would come home from family events and they would say, girl, where are you studying in college? And I'd say, I don't know yet. And they said, you better study those computers. Right. That was was like the default uh, surefire way to have a good, safe career. So for my parents to give me the permission to follow my heart was one of the greatest gifts they gave me. And it actually is, is a very long answer to your question about how did I make these pivots? I've never had a five-year plan. Mm-hmm. I've literally always followed my heart. I always say I have a very loopy background in anthropology and fashion. And probably the most challenging pivot was there was a chapter in my career where I was a middle school and high school English teacher. And I loved teaching. Mm-hmm. But I had also started a small hat design business. And I had started my small hat design business called Nat's Hats while living in New York City. And I started it out of need. I started it because my first job out of college was an amazing fellowship, but it paid very little money. And I couldn't afford to buy all the pretty frocks and the windows of all the great, amazing boutiques in Manhattan. So I went back to what I knew. My mother taught us to sew when we were girls and I started sewing everything. I sewed my winter coat. I sewed outfits for work. So hats. And my girlfriend started saying, I would buy this. And I would say, I can't sell. They would say, I would buy this. You should should try selling this. And I was like, I can't sell this. No one will buy this. And and then on my train rides to and from work, I started thinking, hmm, maybe I could do this. And so one day I walked into a boutique where I like to window shop, introduce myself as a hat designer. And I literally had the hat on my head and two hats at home mm-hmm. and asked to speak to the owner. And that was the first person who bought. She said, sure, let's make an appointment. At the time, I didn't know the difference between inventory and samples. And from there, she bought my hats outright. But but I'm saying, I was to say, I was always very much a hustler that came from my father as well. I was a person who would just try stuff totally out of naivete, had, would never know how hard it was until I was fully into it. But I started Nat's Hats. That gave me the bug for business. I was also a teacher. I thought, I like teaching, but I've got this business bug and I don't want to wake up when I'm old and 40. That's what I said then. Now I'm 50. So it's hilarious <laughs> that I thought that was old. Right. But that was the hardest, leaving education ultimately deciding to earn a master's degree in global textile marketing, which was incredible. It took me to Israel and Germany, but translating for people, why the heck you should give a chance to this seemingly unfocused young woman who's gone from a bit of fashion background, a little bit entrepreneurialism, teacher, does this master's program, like, why should we hire you? And especially the fashion industry, which you know, it doesn't really look that highly upon advanced degrees. It's much more of an industry that rewards grit and showing your worth through, you know, being in the trenches. Mm-hmm. So that was something that was a, it was a pivot that was super hard, but gosh, once I honed 
that leap and how to do that, it has helped me since then um, in making other pivots in my career. That's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, at the core, you're definitely a, a creative and I love how you took that to the classroom. You took it to fashion and have had a lot of success in those areas as well. And so when we think of creativity, we tend to associate it with the arts, right? And even though, you know, to be an incredible scientist or an engineer or entrepreneur requires immense creativity, we still associate it with the arts. I know you've had a great appreciation for the arts and jazz, because as you talked about, you spent a lot of time in your childhood with your parents listening and dancing to jazz, listening to the likes of Charlie Mingus and Count Basie and Ella Fitzgerald. You know, what are some of the commonalities between how jazz musicians perform their craft and how companies can optimize their culture for creativity and improvisation while at the same time optimizing productivity? That's a great question. I ended up doing an entire doctoral dissertation on that. So as it turns out, there is a way to look at organizational design through the lens of improvisation. And after doing my doctoral research, I actually studied the Ritz-Carlton Hotel and how they design experiences for guests, I concluded that the most innovative organizations are actually improvisational. So Mm -hmm. the ways that jazz musicians are all about the build, there's no such thing as a mistake. They welcome being experimental. They have what I would call fluid, nimble structures where they, even in a jazz composition, there's the beginning, the middle, the end. But what happens in the middle, you know, is the magic organizations that move away from micromanagement and a permission slip culture will ultimately flourish because they're empowering their people to be adaptive, to be emergent, to be self-organizing. And those three descriptors, adaptive, emergent, self-organizing, are the descriptions of any complex system. Jazz is a complex system, an organization that can design more fluid, nimble structures will ultimately be much more of an improvisational organization. And it surprises a lot of people to learn that the Ritz-Carlton is an improvisational organization. Wow. So yeah, I mean, what you talked about, adaptive organizations, we definitely need that. We need adaptive leaders. So when you look at maybe what we're experiencing today in terms of this global pandemic, I mean, how important is it that we try to cultivate and nurture that creativity and that improvisation. I mean, I think as a result of what we're experiencing, improvisation has to be at the forefront because in some cases we're having to be flexible and figure it out as we go. What are your thoughts there? Absolutely. So in the midst of COVID-19, I have been writing about and giving a lot of webinars in collaboration with different companies about my perspective that days of uncertainty are designed for creativity. Mm-hmm. And that is because you cannot navigate what you know are known as VUCA environments, environments that are volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, which by the way is just every day, you know, right. Make <laughs> plans as if we, you know, we have this false security, but now it's in our face how complex and ambiguous days are. You can't have a linear lockstep approach. It will not work. So you have to be adaptive. You have to be hyper-observant. You have to incorporate all of the elements that creativity exercises. And I define creativity as our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. And what's happened in a lot of our organizations is that there is a lot of emphasis on the rigor or what we perceive as rigor, you know, incessant meetings, Mm. um, lots of procedure, the rule book not as much time and space 
devoted to and dedicated to the wonder. And rigor just will not be sustainable without wonder. Wonder is all, it's pausing, it's asking big blue sky audacious questions, and then it's looping back into the rigor. That's why I use that word toggle. And something like this period of COVID-19, where we are experiencing a major pause, mm-hmm. there are opportunities to you know, experience the wonder within the wonder, right? So the meta wonder is COVID-19. We're all being forced to pause. And then on an individual level, on organizational levels, we need to redesign our relationship with time. We have to figure out different rituals. We also have to hack our way through technology in ways that we have never had to do before, find new ways to connect on a human level. And so this is actually an incredibly opportune time to exercise our creativity. There are so many people who are now rethinking in the midst of COVID-19 their purpose, how they want to show up for work, what kind of work they want to do what's really necessary and what is no longer so necessary to get the job done. And mm-hmm. so I look at that all as silver lining, even in the midst of a lot of tragedy and pain that people are struggling through because of the pandemic. Absolutely. And so, I mean, you're right. I mean, this is the perfect time to kind of do a, a reset or restart. And so as leaders, what might you suggest You know, we do within our teams um, and personally to kind of jumpstart creativity? To your point, there's a white space that we all have You know, throughout mm-hmm. the day. We can use it as times of reflection to figure out how might we start to uh, create this new normal where we can move into the space of wonder, as you talk about, because it, there's a lot of rigor. There's tons of meetings, right? I think mm-hmm. And this new, the way we're working now, this new virtual environment, we spend a lot of time on Zoom meetings. How can we bring creativity even to those meetings? How can we really make sure we're collaborating in these virtual environments where we're able to ensure everybody's voice is at the table? So love to hear your lens on that creativity, that improvisation, and really cultivating the right environments, even though we're not physically in the same space. Well, First, let me just zoom out a bit and say a lot of the advising I'm giving to my clients is really around something I call the three R's in the midst of valuing this pause called COVID-19. The first is to restore, which is to assess and audit the present and really figure out what you can edit out, slough off, and what should be added in. So it's just kind of the restoration piece is letting the dust settle and really being observant of like, where are we and how are we? The second R is about reorienting. And that's when more of the foresight work that I value can really come into play. So foresight is not about predicting the future. Uh, Foresight is actually about being super present so that you can identify trends, signals on the landscape, and multiple possible futures. It's not about identifying one singular future, but really multiple possible futures so that you can be prepared or prepare your resources, reach out to new strategic partners, and figure out how to ramp up so that you can be as agile as possible. And the third R is about rebooting. And rebooting requires implementing and executing and all these new insights you're developing. So that's one of the ways I'm working with with different 
leaders and companies and helping them to go through the three R's. So that's kind of on a meta level. On a real tactical level, you mentioned Zoom. First of all, I would just call into question that meetings are rigor, right? The mm-hmm. kind of rigor that I think we need to be doing more of is that solo, hits down, quiet work where there's no interruption. And one of the ways you can do this is you've got to start using your timer. Time is a constraint and creativity loves constraints. Mm -hmm. So whether it's heads down for an hour, heads down for 30 minutes, put the timer on and be dedicated to focus where you are not checking email. There's a great book by Nir Eyal called Indistractable, where he has all sorts of hacks to turn off your technology. I'm reading a wonderful book right now called Essentialism Mm. by Greg McKeon, which also has all sorts of helpful ideas and practical advice about how to hone in on what really matters. And so much of this is, it's not that the technology is bad. It's not bad at all. We're not optimizing it to actually help us be productive. So using time as your friend to building constraints to do that deep, quiet work is super important. And then, you know, I also think more companies need to put a a restriction on, you know, maybe out range of hours when there are Zoom meetings happening, because there's some people who are just going through the day without being able to come up for air. So the company leadership, if at all possible, when it can say, you know, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., that's when we will hold meetings and that's it. And then we want you to spend the time before, after, however you choose in your own deep time. The Zoom has actually some really nice features like the whiteboard feature to help people to visualize through doodles, to be collaborative in that way. The breakout rooms are awesome. I use breakout rooms all the time when I'm doing webinars. So those are a couple of features on Zoom to use. There's also great tech, digital, virtual collaboration platforms like Mural, which I really like. Miro is another one, which I'm not as familiar with, but I've I've heard a lot of people be very complimentary about it. So there are ways that, you know, with practice, we can get better at building in the collaboration, building in more time to listen, Mm -hmm. make sure that meetings aren't just coming from one person, but you're hearing from a range of people, you know, framing meetings with some interesting questions, asking people to come to the meetings, having given questions or prepared to ask questions. But, you know, that that's a whole nother skill set that I have of facilitating those sorts of things. But I wouldn't gang up on the technology. It's really that we are not putting our own limits on it and we're not optimizing some of the cool tools that, you know, for example, the whiteboard tool, which is awesome for being able to visualize ideas. Awesome. Yeah, no, really appreciate that insight for us because you're right. I mean, we we are navigating this new normal and this new virtual environment and you really want to create the space for people to come to the, the meetings and really feel like they're being productive and they can fully be present, right? Yes. Even though you're almost back to back. And so how do we really make this environment uh, conducive for us to really have that right level of collaboration and engagement? And I love yes. what you said in the beginning around restoring, reorienting, and rebooting. I love yes. <laughs> super important. I think taking the time to your point on that rebooting or even the restoring, talk a little bit about how you've been using your time to maybe uh, do some of these things and how it's helped you 
you know, in terms of your business and, and really navigating, I would say probably now in this environment, I would expect your services have, or the need for your services has probably ramped up significantly, right? Because it's yes. just a new way of, of thinking at this point, a new way of operating. Absolutely. Well, I really try to practice what I preach in terms of what I've written, the creativity leap. And I, for example, have started a new morning ritual and I'm on around day 12 or so. And so one of the things I've been doing now is as I'm in bed, go falling asleep by 10 PM. So I'm trying to be upstairs, you know, retiring between 9:30 and 10. I wake up at 6 AM. I do not allow myself to press snooze, which is a very new thing for me. And I do my hygiene and I, so between 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., within that first hour of waking up, you know, my hygiene, my ablutions, and then some meditation, prayer, journaling time, and then 15 minutes of, so 15 minutes of that journaling prayer time, and then 15 minutes of stretching my body. As a former dancer, you know, stretching is something, you know, I try to remind my husband of this, who, you know, he's getting closer to, he's starting to take stretch classes with me, but, you know, just pumping up your muscles is actually not what we need as we age. So what's amazing to me, this new morning ritual means I'm at my, I'm a morning person. So I like to get a lot of my hard heads down focus work done in the morning. By 7am, I have clarity and a calm that I feel very consistently now. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a promise that I've kept to myself. It is a promise that I'm keeping to myself. And I think after, you know, I'm not doing this on the weekend, but you know, Monday through Friday I am. And, and I'm hoping that, you know, 21 days in, it will really become a habit and I feel good about it. So that's one thing I do. I'm a very kinesthetic learner. I love movement. I try to go outside for a walk every day mm-hmm. um, on days that are really packed even if it's a walk up and down the block, I do that. I also time, I build in time in my day to daydream. So I actually have a timer set for like five minutes where I will just sit outside on the steps and look at the clouds go by Mm. or or I'll I'll stand by the window. But you know, that comes from my childhood. I was always a daydreamer. I can't stop daydreaming, but we now know all the neuroscience of brain research shows that our neural synapses need the ability to also toggle between different domains and regions of the brain for the deep focus thought and the random associations, which is where good ideas come from. We have to allow the space to rest. And that's another reason why I'm committing more regularly to consistently get sleep. Sleep is really, really underestimated and how helpful it is to our brain power and our physical growth. Totally agree. Totally agree. I love the daydreaming piece. I really do. I'm going to have to incorporate that more into my life. You know, in your research and just in your day-to-day practice, I know you've created a lot of very cool frameworks around creativity. What's your favorite? And talk about how we can put those frameworks or or a particular framework to use in our lives today. Well, probably the favorite is really is the wonder rigor framework. I'm a bit of a geek. So if you already heard some of my other uh, heuristics, like, you know, the three R's for the pause, you know, the restore, reorient, reboot, but embedded in the wonder rigor framework is what I call the three I's. And basically what I'm saying there is that, you know, wonder and rigor is the essence of creativity. And then to exercise 
wonder and rigor, you have to tap into the three eyes, which are inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. So what I like about that framework is I believe it's simple. Every time I share it with people, their eyes light up. There's a, like a delight in them that they're given permission to engage in wonder, but also to do the hard work to find moments in time for rigor. And that I would say is, and it's probably just because it's much more top of mind for me with the book and, and just in the ways I'm helping people and working with, with different organizations now. Love it. Love it. I love the improvisation. You talked a little bit about that, but you know, when I think about improv, my mind immediately goes to improv clubs, you know, and really just trying to make certain that as we articulate an idea that we can keep things going, how can we really start to leverage that improv improvisation concept Mm -hmm. in our organization? Because I believe it's super powerful. Yes. Well, I, you know, I have an anecdotal theory that we have to always be students of something. Being in a student mode keeps you humble, it keeps you curious, and you certainly learn to improvise um, when you're really clumsy and just fumbling your way through learning something. So on an individual level, I think that's one way we can practice being improvisational. You can also literally, whenever we get through this COVID chapter of, of life, you know, take an improv class at your local community theater or a comedy club. But improvisation is also happens through music and through dance and movement. So that's one way on an individual level. On an organizational level, I go back to the examples and models uh, from the Ritz-Carlton. So an example of a nimble, fluid structure that they have, they also love mnemonics and and acronyms. And every day at every property around the world in the Ritz-Carlton, every team has what's called a lineup. And it's whether you're a maid or working in the boiler room or front of the house management team, you meet daily and you, one of the things you always review is something called Mr. Bivs mm-hmm. and um, Mr. Bivs stands for mistakes, revisions, breakdowns, inefficiencies, and variations. And when I would observe these lineup meetings, one of the things that was happening is that here in a very you know luxury high end offering service offering they had this nimble structure that was really trying to equip people with embracing their mistakes and that is something that we have got to mm-hmm. shift to and not be a punitive culture that is only solutions oriented but also falls in love with the process and improvisation is all about process. It's all about the build. If you know Improv 101, you know it's about yes and. If you go into yes but or no because, you have totally stopped the momentum and flow of an idea. And at the end of the day, creativity is about flow. And practicing improvisation, being super present, actively listening, being able to think on your feet. So when they would share these Mr. Bibbs, they were really being being in this mode of acknowledging this didn't work out yesterday. You know, we had this wedding party and I don't know, we ran out of forks and Mm -hmm. who else has had this problem? If the team present couldn't figure it out, what the Ritz-Carlton did is they posted the question, the query within their intranet and anyone from, you know, Ritz-Carlton property around the world would tune in and, and if they could answer the question and resolve the problem through their own experience in learning, they would. And of course, because it's the Ritz-Carlton, there's nice incentives, right? So if you, there are rewards of 
being rewarded a trip if you are the team that's figured out how to problem solve the best, right? But that's something that other organizations, you can put your own spin and twist to how can you and your organizational culture figure out ways to build in competencies, to build on mistakes, to really truly be experimental where people aren't really, you know, trembling in the shadows and think, gosh, I'm going to lose my job if right. I stay out here and, you know, have to say mea culpa. So that's an example. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you want to create a culture where ideas are welcome and mistakes are welcome at the same time. And I love the fact that the teams solve the problem together. It wasn't That's that, right. oh, well, Lakeisha made a mistake. Well, I might've made a mistake, but as a team, we can collectively bring our brilliance to the table and really ensure that we don't make a mistake and we build on so that we can have a more successful experience for the company and for the customer. Absolutely love that. One more thing that's really awesome about the example that I always point out, but this is actually something I, I do in my day. Um, notice the built into their hack to build a more experimental culture are rewards, right? Celebrate mm-hmm. successes, like acknowledge when people have done well, no matter how small it is, because that becomes cumulative. People are encouraged to keep showing up, to keep trying. And uh, that's something else that has to happen. Not just that, like the annual summer barbecue, where you might right. say a holiday <laughs> party, where you, you know, say some nice things about a few people. But in your daily work, how do you celebrate that people are showing up, that people are trying, that their efforts are being acknowledged and recognized? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, many times we use the words creativity and innovation synonymously. But I sense that you don't see it that way. How would you describe the difference? And why did you decide to focus on creativity in your book when most companies seem to be focused on the word innovation? Yeah, that's a great question. I define innovation as invention converted into value. So in other words, you can invent something like, you know, connectors for electricity, and it could be this cool contraption in your lab or in your basement. Mm -hmm. But until you figure out how that contraption, which emanates light, can add value to people's lives, it can add financial value, cultural value, social value, not until you get it to the level that was converted to value, is it actually an innovation in the way I'm defining innovation. So innovation is invention converting to value. And creativity is distinct from innovation because creativity is the engine for innovation. Mm -hmm. So. In my advisory work, the creeping sensation that I had a few years ago when I was when I was just really delving into focusing more on creativity versus innovation is that I was seeing so much chatter and talk about creating cultures of innovation, innovation centers, you know, innovation mindset. But I just had this creeping sensation that sometimes people were talking over and around each other, didn't always know what we meant by innovation. And in my view, we have to pause. And we have to back up a bit and start first with the engine for innovation, which is creativity. The challenge, of course, for my work was that how was I going to convince, you know, uh, senior vice presidents levels and up that they actually had to embrace creativity when I knew they hear the word creative mm-hmm. and they think of an artist. They think of I'm a dancer, a painter, a musician. And so this ghettoization that we've done with creativity, right? We've ghettoized it in the arts. It's not fair to artists because it puts the burden of creativity only on on the arts. And 
it's not beneficial to our society at large. In my view, we are all hardwired to be creative. It gets a bit drummed out of us through our educational systems. And then we get into organizations that are really siloed and we further silo where we say creativity happens. So, you know, that's how I'm distinguishing creativity versus invention versus innovation. Well, I love that, right? I mean, creativity is the engine for innovation. Um, That is so true. How do we develop that creativity competency if we don't have it? Or maybe we do. How do we create it within our organizations? You know, most people, to your point, think of the art as creative, but I believe engineers and doctors and scientists, we all have to be creative. And it's not just analytical or not analytical or analytical or creative or both. I just think it's something to your point. Maybe we need to figure out how to build that in. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, for my book, The Creativity Leap, I interviewed over 50 people from really diverse sectors. So people at NASA, people from PricewaterhouseCoopers, farmers, plumbers, folks who work in in beauty and cosmetics to understand how creativity shows up in their work. And it convinced me even further that, you know, my point that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. So one of the ways we can start to amplify creativity is first we have to hire for it. We maybe have to change the way we interview, what we're requiring in an interview, the types of questions that we're asking. Um, Maybe there's a bit more of interactivity. There's some games that we do or we ask people to show us a bit more of their personal self. I, I say that people have to show up to work in drag these days. They're not really allowed to show up as their true selves. And you identify really cool aspects of someone like who would know that I love ballroom dance, right? Mm -hmm. That's something that might be, might translate as a real skill in being able to teach or being able to help people learn how to follow. So we have to hire for creativity. We then have to cultivate it in our organizations through, for example, these nimble structures that I've already alluded to, Mm -hmm. through leadership modeling, that they're not just saying, oh, we love mistakes, embrace mistakes, but they actually admit to their mistakes, not just humble brag, but really, you know, things that haven't gone well, things that, you know, aren't ideal. Collaborate truly across silos and across departments. Um, I like to reference a lot the work of, of Jerry Hirschberg, who used to be the head of Nissan International Design, the car company, the automotive company. When he was head of design for Nissan, he developed this term called creative abrasion. And he would always make sure that whatever problem his design team was working through, that they also invited people from sales, from Mm -hmm. marketing, from manufacturing, from finance, because he understood that while we might shy away from conflict and friction when we bring people together of different skill sets, he understood that ultimately friction produces energy. So why not convert that friction, that energy into something positive? And the way I like to say it is that the more diverse the inputs, the more innovative the output. So, you know, making sure you truly have creative abrasion teams so that you don't get into groupthink is really important. That's an example of a way to cultivate creativity. And then um, you've got to sustain it. You've got to actually build it into the incentives of how people are promoted. Uh, You've got to incentivize people through time, through money, so that people really see, okay, I could come up for a promotion if I demonstrate 
how in the last quarter I've reached out and exercised lateral thinking and, you know, engaged totally different types of strategic partners in this process. How have I demonstrated curiosity and really framing new and different types of questions? And what did I do with that? How have I been more of a prototyping experimental mindset? If that becomes part of the way that we are evaluating and then making decisions, not only on uh, P&L, then that says a lot about a culture shift in the organization. Absolutely. I love that. I mean, for one, it's in our DNA. That's what I hear you say, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's in, we have it already. And being intentional about creating an environment for us to be more creative, for lack of a better term, creating that space for the teams to demonstrate creativity and problem solving and collaboration, bringing diverse thoughts to the table, but at the same time, just being open for those things and rewarding those things. That's yeah. what I'm taking away from the conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, the reward that, listen, habits are feedback loops and the way, whether you are, addicted to drugs or addicted to going to the gym, there is a reward built in there somewhere. You're right. 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 And that's why you keep going back for more. So make it a positive habit and make sure you've got to build in the reward so that it becomes something that people will work through the grind and grit in order to receive the positive at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, I'm enjoying this conversation because, you know, as we're talking about unleashing, you know, our curiosity, our improvisation, our creativity, all of those things in the workforce, really, and also in our daily lives, I'm going to take some steps myself after this conversation for sure. And so I know we could talk to you all day. Is there anything else that you like to leave us with? And then I want to have a um, move into our lightning round with a few questions that I want to ask to close us out. But any other stories or insights that you think will really help bring to light some of the things that you've talked about? Well, I hope people will buy the book. You know, I really hope that people will be curious and take a look at the book, The Creativity Leap. I wrote it in a way that it is not academic unlike my first book, which was on a design thinking. It's a book that I edited. This book really is, is full of anecdotes, references to all the generous practitioners who gave me time in an interview. And it comes with tips at the end of each chapter. There's a discussion guide that I've developed, which the publisher Barrett Kohler will be making available. I'm also going to have it available on my website. People can go to my website, figure8thinking.com. And along the top banner, there's a clear call to action to click on that top banner and join as a subscriber to the newsletter, figure eight thinking and receive a free sample chapter. And then that way, before you buy, you can get a sense of what the book is like. And I hope that it compels you enough that you decide to abide on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for letting us know that. I mean, and the fact that we can actually get a sneak peek with the chapter. And, and for me, I really want to incorporate it, like I said, not only in my in my personal life, but even in my work life, right? I think it's important as leaders that we create the space for creativity and innovation to thrive. Because to your point, there's so much rigor in every day in our in our work environment that unless you're intentional about creating the white space to allow creativity and innovation, the result to happen, it doesn't. And we always talk about, oh, we want these breakthroughs, but you have to catalyze the environment for the breakthroughs. And I think your book is going to give us the frameworks and the ideas um, and exercises that we can deploy on a day-to-day basis. I'm excited about it. Thank you so much, Lakeisha. I really appreciate that endorsement.
Appreciate Absolutely. It. Yeah. So, okay. So we're going to get to lightning round because I know we got to let you go. So what I'll do is I'll say a word or phrase and you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. Okay. All right. So favorite food. <laughs> uh, vegetable biryani rice. Ooh, I love that. What's your guilty pleasure? If you might share. Bubble bath. Ooh, that sounds amazing. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> favorite book. Uh, it's a novel by Jay California Cooper called In Search of Satisfaction. Ooh, I like that too. Current Netflix addiction? Oh, there's so many. Really loving Killing Eve, even though that's uh, BBC. Love, I love that love, too. Love. Yeah. Love, love, love Ozark. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Okay. Dream vacation. To go back to the Maldives, somewhere warm and hot with water. <laughs> I knew I loved you for a reason. Okay. So I'm going <laughs> to hang out with you now. <laughs> yes. I love everything that you've said. Well, listen, again, I thank you so much for your time today. And I know um, my listeners are going to absolutely enjoy listening to you and they're going to eat up your new book. I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and get that right away. And as Natalie said, you can continue to hear from her by tapping into her on LinkedIn, Twitter. Her website is figureeightthinking.com. And as she said, please purchase her book on all channels, including Amazon. So again, Natalie, we thank you so much. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much, Lakeisha. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Roar. Tune in next time for more awesome talks with people at the top. Don't forget to subscribe and share so you're the first to know when our newest episodes are available. Until next time, 